Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that even as that song just uh, said that um, you speak through it, and that's our earnest desire this morning is to hear from you. And so we join our voices together and say, speak, O Lord. We rejoice that you have spoken through your word and that you continue to speak through it, and you will do so until your church is fully established on the earth that the entire earth is filled with your glory. And God, that is our heart's desire. And so God, as we approach this text this morning, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would be the one who is at work in our hearts, turning our minds and our affections toward you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Good morning again. Um, This morning is our final Sunday in the Gospel of Mark for a couple months. Uh, You may be confused because there's 16 chapters in Mark and and we're only in Mark chapter 8. We're going to take a break uh, for the rest of the summer. We're actually at the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Mark uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. And this morning's text is is a text that's all about signs. And um, uh, signs, uh, of course, are are essential, or we at least think they're essential for us in the modern world. World, uh, without traffic signs, and I'm not thinking of majority world countries because they get oh boy they get around fine without traffic signs. But today in the United States, if if we didn't have traffic signs, uh, intersections would be completely uncontrolled. Traffic would come to a crawl. Driving would be far more dangerous than it is right now. Things would just be a lot more confusing than they currently are. Right. Uh, similarly, uh, signs of all different types um, are, are meant to communicate this deeper truth than the things that we actually see. And so on their own, there's, nothing de- there's, there's no significance to a sign. Let's go ahead and throw the first sign up there. Uh, this, uh, there, there's nothing significant about a red octagon, is there? And yet there is this deeper significance that, that those of us who are familiar with traffic laws here in the United States, when we see that, we know that this means something specific. What exactly does this mean? It means stop. Yeah, we don't, need a, we don't need the word stop on there for us to understand what that means. Let's throw another one up there. Uh, if we see something like this while we are out driving, even if there's no words on it, we know it means something like what? What's coming up? There's construction. There's something you need to slow down. And yeah, there's something going on up ahead and you need to be paying attention. It's a, it's a sign that, that even though you know, an orange diamond doesn't mean anything to us on its own, we at the same time associate it with this deeper meaning. And that's what I mean when I say that they, these signs have a deeper significance It's something that we understand, that we associate with these different signs. But of course, uh, signs are of no use to us if we don't understand that deeper meaning. So let's go ahead and throw this next one up. If we don't understand what it's trying to communicate, it does nothing for us, right? Right line must right left, whatever that means. Uh, We we can see that sign, and we don't know what it's trying to communicate to us, and so it leaves us uh, completely... it's completely worthless to us. We don't understand. Let's throw the next one up there as well. Or if you see this sign, you know, uh, I don't know. I think you need a PhD to understand what that sign means, right? So we can see signs, and and on their own, they, they don't mean all that much for us, and yet they communicate to us this deeper meaning. This, this is something that we need to pay attention to, something that we should 
really learn. And, and, and yet there's this problem. If, if we don't understand what the sign is trying to communicate, it does absolutely no good for us. This can, of course, lead to uh, a number of different consequences. Several years ago, my family and I I decided to go to a game at Wrigley Field in Chicago and to, to watch the Cubs. And, and I remember that the parking signs uh, in, the, in the neighborhood around Wrigley Field were just unbelievably confusing. And my family and I, we got out and, and we looked at this sign and, and we stared and we discussed for about 20 minutes. What does this sign actually mean? What is it trying to communicate to us? Are we going to be parking illegally or are we parking legally here? And, and, and we decided, you know what, let, let's just go ahead and risk it. We're going to miss the game. So we parked and then we left. And of course, you can probably under, uh, guess what happened when we came back. Thankfully, our cars were still there, but there were parking tickets on those cars. We, we to use language from, uh, from Mark this morning, we saw the signs, we had eyes to see and yet we did not see. We saw the sign, and yet we did not understand what the sign meant, and so we had to pay the consequences for that. And that's what this morning's text is all about in one sense. It's, it's all about signs. And as we come to the, the end of the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us three stories here in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. They're, they're three very pointed, short stories that force us to reflect on everything that we've covered so far in the Gospel of Mark. And they force us to ask these questions of ourselves, to, to ask ourselves if we truly understand everything that we have just read. In other words, it's, it's all about signs and whether we understand the significance or the depth of the meaning behind those signs. And so right here at the beginning of this text, I don't want us to miss what Mark is trying to communicate to us. I want to make it abundantly clear. If there's one thing that this text tells us or, or asks us, it's, it's this simple question. It's the most important question you could really ever ask yourself, and it's simply this. You have seen the signs. Do you believe? You have seen the signs, do you believe? We've seen a lot of incredible things in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to see another incredible miracle from Jesus here at the beginning of this chapter. But it's not enough for us to be amazed at all these things, to think, wow, that must have been really something. Oh, if only I could have been there and seen it in person. No, Mark confronts us with a question. He says, hey, you've, you've seen the signs. Do you believe? As I mentioned earlier, this text has three encounters in it, all of them surrounding this question of signs. We're going to uh, break our text into these three different parts. First, looking at the final sign, and then we're going to look at the demand for a sign. And then finally, this question from Jesus, do you see the signs? So let's look at the, the final sign first uh, in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. This is a, a story that comes right on the heels of last week's story. And if we remember the context from last week, Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's, he's ministering among these Gentiles, and he heals this man who is born both mute, or maybe not born, but he's both deaf and mute. And Mark uses this really significant term to refer to the, the, the speech impediment that he has. It's this very rare term. It's found only one other place in the Bible. It's found in Isaiah chapter 35. And in the context of Isaiah 35, uh, Isaiah is prophesying about this day in the future when God is finally going to come to earth. When God finally shows up, he's going to make everything right. He's going to heal everyone, even these people who have this type of speech, this rare speech impediment, just like this man. 
And Mark is telling us by using this word that the, this time that Isaiah has looked forward to, this time that Isaiah has longed for, this time when God is going to return and he's going to make everything right in our broken bodies, it's not just something that's coming in the future, but it's actually something that's here right now in the person of Jesus. And because Jesus has come and Jesus is going to the cross, we can rest assured that the healing that we see just a little glimpse of 2,000 years ago is going to come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And God has really reminded me of this truth over the last week or so. Um, Many of you are are aware that that I was born blind in my left eye, and and I look like a pirate right now for some reason. Uh, And and that's just because over this past week, I've I've had this uh, really difficult, painful eye infection that's been going on. And and last week, I think God has a sense of humor. Last week, I stand up here and say, you know what, God is bringing this new creation. He's going to make everything right, everything good, everything beautiful. And then on Monday, I, 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 well, even on Sunday, I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it says this, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I said that last Sunday, and then on Monday, I have to actually live what I preached. And, and oh, do I actually believe this? As, I, as I'm in the midst of this brokenness of my body, as I'm in the midst of this, this pain, I, I'm, I'm forced to ask myself, okay, do, do I really believe what I just said? Am I actually confident that I don't have to lose hope? That this is really a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal glory of the new creation. Can I actually say, with the crowds at the end of Mark chapter 7 and verse 37, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And that's the context of this morning's text. It's right after this crowd has said, you know, everything Jesus does is good. Everything Jesus does is beautiful. It's perfect. And then we have this story where Jesus has this crowd surrounding him, and he's teaching this crowd. In fact, he's teaching them for three days. And so let's go ahead and read the beginning of this story found in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Well, if you have been with us in the Gospel of Mark, it may seem like this passage is relatively familiar for us. And that's because something like this has already happened in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 6, verses 30 through 44, we see this famous a miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 men and women and children, so actually probably around 10,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And now, here in Mark chapter 8, we have this second miraculous feeding. This is the feeding of the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. And, and, and if you're wondering, the fact that Jesus takes more food and multiplies it for less people doesn't mean that Jesus is becoming less powerful as time goes on. It's just a sign of this accurate reporting from an eyewitness, that this is actually what happened. And here, Jesus is, is teaching this crowd for three days, and, and it, it's probably hot, and, and no one had prepared for that. If you think my sermons are long in the heat, just, just be thankful that I'm not going three days long. Everyone uh, who, who's there, they probably thought ahead, and they brought a lunch, but they didn't bring a second lunch 
or a third lunch. They didn't pack for supper or, or breakfast the next day. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And so after three days of, of Jesus' teaching, everyone's food is, is almost completely exhausted. And of course, the people are exhausted as well. And Jesus knows that where they're at, they're in the wilderness. They're in too remote of a, of a place for them to send them away without feeding them. He, he, Jesus knows that a number of them are going to faint on the, the journey home because it's a long journey back to their homes. And so our text tells us that Jesus is filled with this compassion. This word compassion is a, is a very visceral term. It's something that it, it's, uh, it, it describes this emotion that's just rooted in your gut. Jesus' entire body is moved to act out of this pity for the crowds. His body is compelled to actually do something for the needs of the crowds. And that's what we see starting in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So many, uh, many people um, who are critical of the Gospels will just say, Well, this didn't actually happen. This is just a retelling of the exact same story that we saw uh, from a couple chapters earlier, that the, the details are slightly different, that there were just two different oral traditions. Some people said 4,000, some people said 5,000. We don't really know which one is the accurate one, and so Mark just included both of them. And, and, and if you look at the response of the disciples here, um, it, it's, a relatively com it's relatively reasonable, maybe not compelling. After all, they just saw Jesus multiply food for tens of thousands of people, and now they're in a similar situation, and instead of saying, well, Jesus, you did it before, why don't you just do it again, what's their response? Their response is to say, there's no way that we can see this happen. There's no way that we are going to be able to feed all of these people. And yet Mark hinted at this hardness of heart earlier, Mark chapter 6. And they were utterly astounded, for the disciples did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All the way back in Mark chapter 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells, or Mark tells us that the disciples don't understand the significance of that miracle, of that first feeding of the, of the thousands. And now we, we see here that they don't grasp that Jesus is able to do it again. They don't come out of this passage looking all that good. And if our, if our passage is asking this question, hey, you've seen the signs. Do you believe? Well, the answer, at least from what we've seen of the disciples so far, for the disciples, the answer is no. The disciples may have seen the signs. Those who are closest to Jesus have seen these signs, and yet they're mired in this unbelief. Pick up in verse 6. And he, Jesus, directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. So just like in the previous miraculous feeding, we see that Jesus is able to provide for these thousands of people, uh, these, this multitude in the wilderness, and it's almost like there's this banquet feast, and Jesus is the one who's in charge of it. He's the one presiding over it. He's, he's giving thanks for the food. He's, he's distributing the food, uh, the food and, and something supernatural is happening here, obviously, because uh, everyone doesn't just get a little bit of a, of a taste but everyone, after three days, 
is completely and fully satisfied. Everyone here is able to eat their fill. And how do the disciples in the crowd respond? If we look again at at verse 8, let's pick up in verse 8 again. And they ate and were satisfied, and they were amazed, and they fell down and worshipped him. No. Just as, and then they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people of Dalmanutha. The crowd gathers, the crowd eats, the crowd's satisfied, and then they're sent away. The disciples are sent out to gather all of the leftovers, and they're left with seven baskets full of bread. They start with these seven dinner rolls. And now have seven baskets full of, of bread. I mentioned a few moments ago that there are good reasons to, uh, to see this as a completely different story, uh, a completely different event than what we saw uh, in Mark chapter 6. And, and one of the key ways to, to see that difference is to understand the word basket here. The, the two miraculous feedings, Mark 6 and Mark 8, they have radically different purposes. Mark is trying to communicate something different in each one. Jesus is trying to communicate something different in each one. And it all, well, not all of it, but, but a, a key way to understand the difference there is that he actually uses two different words for basket. So in Mark chapter 6, uh, when, when Jesus is, is um, sending the disciples out to gather up the food, if you remember from, from uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, how many baskets of bread did they come back with? They come back with 12 baskets. Each disciple is sent out and then they come back with, with a basket of bread. And the word basket there actually denotes something that's the modern day equivalent would be a lunchbox. So they're sent out to gather up the leftovers and, and each of them comes back with a, with a lunchbox full of bread. And, and in the context of, of Mark chapter 6, it is a reminder to them that right after John the Baptist is beheaded, Right after Jesus sends these disciples out into ministry in Galilee, it is a very tangible reminder that Jesus is not just the good shepherd, he is their good shepherd. That he will provide for each of them personally. That he is going to take care of each of them, always provide for each of them. No matter what they face, Jesus is their good shepherd. And then we get to Mark chapter 8, and the picture is different because the word basket is different here. They only collect seven baskets of bread this time, but the word basket is something that describes a much larger basket. It's not a lunch box. It is it's actually a basket that is so big that it can, can fit a full-grown man. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 9, it is this, this same word is used to describe how Paul escapes from Damascus. It says this, but his disciples took him by night and let him, Paul, down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. It's the same word, basket. So what's going on here? Well, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has his disciples go out and collect all of this leftover bread, and they don't just collect these, these little uh, lunch boxes full of bread. They collect these massive baskets full of bread, and this is this powerful description of just how powerful and how strong Jesus is. Look at how much bread he can provide. It's this powerful picture of his identity. In the Old Testament, in the, Ex- in the Exodus account, God provides food. He provides bread for his people in abundance. 
And now Jesus is doing the exact same thing that God did. Only God is able to do this, and now we see that Jesus is doing it. God did it when he was about to save his people. And now, what is Jesus doing? The exact same thing. So what does that tell us about who Jesus is? And in the midst of all this, the disciples, they they don't get it. They don't understand. And the meaning of what Jesus is doing goes completely over their heads. As we soon will see in in just a few short verses, the disciples, they get into this discussion. They say, hey, whatever happened to all that bread? Why don't we have that bread with us right now? Jesus is talking about bread. Why Why don't we have all of that bread? They miss the point. They miss the meaning behind the sign. And I've called this first story here the final sign. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't heal people later. That's not to say that miracles don't happen later in the Gospel of Mark. But as we close the first half of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is about to ask his disciples this very, very crucial question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? They've seen all of these things, these incredible, amazing things that Jesus has done. Who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus and the disciples, they head across the Sea of Galilee and they go back to Jewish territory. And the moment they get into Jewish territory, they run into the Pharisees again. And let's pick up in our second section this demand for a sign that starts in verse 11. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So immediately after this final sign, Now we we have this moment, the Jewish authorities, they show up and they start demanding what? They start demanding a sign from Jesus to prove who Jesus is. This phrase, sign from heaven, is is just a way of saying, hey, hey, we want a, a sign from God. We want a sign, Jesus, that proves that you are someone special. We want God to do something through you miraculous. We want God to do something through you that is otherworldly, something that only God can do. And they claim that if, if you do that, Jesus, then we'll believe. If you provide this sign, Jesus, then we will believe in you. But then Mark, of course, reveals their true hearts. Mark tells us what, what their purpose was, that, that they wanted to test him. They do this from a place of unbelief. They, they only want to test Jesus. And the word test is only used four times in the Gospel of Mark. Three times it's used to refer to the Pharisees, and once it's used to refer to Satan testing Jesus. This heart posture of the Pharisees reveals their unbelief, and it reveals a really big danger that faces us today. The Pharisees had seen all of these incredible signs, all of these incredible things that take place in the Gospel of Mark. They've they've seen these signs, and yet they refuse to believe who Jesus is. Mark 3 actually tells us that instead of seeing Jesus receiving his power from God, they, they would rather see Jesus as possessed by Satan. That the reason he is able to do these things is not because of God, it's because of Satan. And I just want to pause and ask a question. Have you ever wanted a sign from God? Have you ever wanted a sign from God that he was real or or that he cared for you? And I think that that we can have this mindset today that says, well, if, if only I had seen those miracles in Jesus's day, or or if only God would reveal himself to me in in a tangible way today, then I would fill in the blank. 
I, 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 would, I would be more passionate in my faith. I would never doubt. I would trust God with my whole heart. We have this mistaken notion that what is lacking in our faith is a sign. What's lacking in my own faith, in my own obedience, is something that God has failed to provide us with. We can say, hey, you know, if I, if I just seen Jesus walk on the water, there's no way that I would doubt. If I, if I was there when Jesus healed the blind, then I would never struggle with sin because I'd know without a doubt who he was. If I was there when Jesus fed those crowds, then I would never doubt that God would provide for me. But what does the heart posture of the Pharisees reveal to us? This heart posture of the Pharisees reveals that seeing signs doesn't do much. Seeing signs doesn't, doesn't mean all that much. The Pharisees had seen incredible things from Jesus' hands and they still rejected him. Same, take, same thing takes place in the, in the Old Testament, the wilderness generation. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle of God delivering them from the Egyptians. They've seen God's presence with them in a very tangible way while they walk through the wilderness. And what do they do? They doubt whether God is really with them. They doubt whether God is actually going to take care of them, whether God is actually on their side. And the thing about this uh, section is it's, it's reminding us that the, the problem with our doubt, the problem with our unbelief isn't a lack of signs from God. The problem with our unbelief is not with God, it's, it's with you and with me. The problem, when, when I go through a difficult week and I wonder, hey God, why on earth didn't you make things easier for me? The issue isn't, well, I would have trusted in him wholeheartedly, fully, if he would have just been more vocal at the beginning. No, the, the, the issue is with me. The issue with, with my unbelief isn't with God, it, it's, it's with me. And the Pharisees stand as a startling reminder of that. Verse 12. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So how does Jesus respond to their unbelief? With exasperation. He sighs, and it's not because he's, he's relating with them, or with their struggle like he does in the, with the man in Mark 7, verse 34. It's because he's grieved over their hardness of heart. He knows the issue with the Pharisees isn't that he hasn't done enough, or it isn't because he hasn't been clear enough. The issue is with their hearts. And so Jesus says no sign is going to be given to this generation, at least no more than what he's already done. Just consider the signs that we've seen from Jesus so far in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, it starts with four testimonies about who Jesus is. Mark 1, verse 1, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1, verses 2 and 3 tell us that the, the Bible, the Old Testament, tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark uh, 1, 4 through 8 uh, tells us that John the Baptist is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1, 9 through 11 tells us that a voice from heaven says that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark 1 tells us that Jesus is the most powerful teacher who has ever lived, that he has power over sickness and over death, over evil spirits. He has more power than anyone could ever fathom to make the unclean clean. Mark 2 shows us that Jesus is able to heal a paralytic. 
Mark 3 shows us that Jesus does healing after healing after healing, exorcism after exorcism after exorcism. Mark 4 shows us that Jesus can still a storm with just a word, something that only God can do. Mark 5 tells us that Jesus can stop evil incarnate in its tracks because of his power. It also shows us that Jesus has power over death itself. Mark 6 shows us that, that Jesus can provide this endless food for his people because of his compassion, that he is the long-awaited good shepherd. Mark 6 also shows us that Jesus can walk on the water, something that the Old Testament tells us that only God can do. Jesus heals so many people by just the loosest of association with them. They can just reach up and grab his clothes and they'll be healed. Mark sums up all of this at the end of Mark chapter 6. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Mark 7 shows us that Jesus can heal this pagan woman's daughter with not even speaking a word. He can heal her from a distance. It shows us that Jesus can take this deaf man and give him hearing. He can take this man who is, who is mute and loosen his tongue so he can sing praises of joy. Just like in the Old Testament where it said that, that God would one day do those things. And we just saw in Mark chapter 8. That Jesus is able to, he, or to feed the multitudes. He's going to provide for his people in the wilderness just exactly like God did in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees come and say, give us a sign? Is there any doubt? Do you really blame Jesus for saying, hey, no sign is going to be given to this generation? He's given them sign after sign after sign after sign. And so he says to these Pharisees, if you haven't understand, understood those signs so far, then nothing is going to break into your hard hearts. And right after that, Jesus sets off back to the other side, back to Bethsaida at this point. And, and, and we look at this and we can probably say, well, it's not all that surprising that the Pharisees don't believe. It's not all that surprising because they're hostile toward Jesus. That's why the, the final part of this text this morning is so convicting. We see in, in 14 through 21 that it's not just the Pharisees, it's not just Jesus' enemies who, who are in danger of hard hearts of unbelief. It's also those who are closest to Jesus. It's those who have been with Jesus, who have seen all of the signs and yet still do not believe. And so consider this warning, this heart-exposing question of this, final question of this final section. It's not just for those who are militantly opposed to Jesus. It's, it's primarily for those who associate with Jesus. Do you see the signs? Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus has this brief discussion with the Pharisees, and then Jesus and his disciples, they get back into the boat, and they're probably headed for Bethsaida. And I imagine that there's this, this quiet that hangs over the group as they're sailing away from the Pharisees. Everyone's just kind of quiet, reflecting on this confrontation. And finally, Jesus is the one who breaks the silence. Jesus breaks the silence by telling his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. 
Now, this may seem like a somewhat unusual uh, saying to us, but it was, it was something that would have been pretty easy for the disciples to get because it was a common word picture in the first century for Jews to use. It, it was something that was used to describe the destructive power of, of such a small thing if it is a corrupting influence. In fact, Paul uses the same language in Galatians uh, chapter 5, uh, Galatians 5, where he's describing what has led the church astray. It says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here is Jesus, and, and, and what Jesus is saying should be obvious to the disciples, and, and he tells them to watch out for a heart like the Pharisees, to watch out for a heart that is, is so caught up in, in religious rules and, and religious regulations and, and trying to look right in the sight of others that you are hardened against God himself. And he tells them to, to watch out for a heart like Herod. Herod, who in, in Mark chapter 6, he's, he's interested in the, the message of repentance He's interested in the message of John the Baptist, but at the same time, he's too in love with his worldly comforts. He's too in, afraid of other people for him to actually believe. So Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for that type of heart, either from the Pharisees or from Herod. And it's the same thing is true today, isn't it? The same type of influence can be found in, in our own lives as well. We can be so caught up in our appearances of trying to look good for others that we miss the gospel. That we can, we can begin to think that because of what we do, that, that we go to church, that, that we're nice to other people, that, that we pray before our meals, that we read our Bibles, that we give occasionally, that we pray sometimes. All of these things that, you know what, because of all that, I, I'm actually pretty good in God's eyes. This is 11, this mindset that can corrupt our whole hearts and make the message of the gospel that we are completely unworthy of, of God's grace, it can make it offensive to us. And the same thing can be true with this mindset, this heart like Herod as well, where we can be so caught up in the pleasures of this world, so in love with our comfort, so afraid of what other people will say about us if we're serious about our faith, that we're paralyzed from ever coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, we may never actually even feel that we need the gospel because if I look at my life, I don't see that I need a Savior. That concept is just completely foreign and otherworldly. Why would I need a Savior? I have a nice house, I have a nice family, I have a nice retirement fund, I have a nice job. What could I possibly need that I don't already have? Jesus tells us that such a heart is dead to the message of the gospel, and it all starts with a little bit of leaven. A little bit of this mindset, a little bit of this attitude can corrupt your entire heart. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples, they, sh they should have understood what Jesus meant. But that's not the case. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. The, the response of the disciples here shows just how precarious of a situation they find themselves in. They are completely missing the point again. 
completely missing the point. They're still focused on bread because they didn't bring anyone with them for the trip and it was their responsibility. And, and it says that they actually begin discussing. It's not just a one-time thing. They begin having this conversation with one another, showing just how far removed from the truth they actually are. It's like one of them says, hey, Matthew, wasn't it your turn to bring the bread this time? Or whatever happened to those seven baskets full of bread? James, did you and your brother and, and Simon and, and Andrew, did you guys really eat all of that bread? And Jesus cuts them, out, cuts them off and he cuts all the pretenses and he says something that goes straight for the heart. It's the most pointed question in the Gospel of Mark. It says this, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you per not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus is asking us the exact same question today. Having studied the first half of Mark's gospel, having seen all these miracles, having seen all of these incredible things from Jesus' hands, do we not understand the meaning of these miracles? Or in other words, you have seen the signs. Do you believe? You have seen the signs. Do you believe? You see, this morning's text is all about belief. It's all about unbelief. You don't need a sign. God's already provided them in his word. You, you've seen the signs, even if this is your first time with us this morning. If you haven't been with us for the last eight months or so. You, you've, I, I alluded to a number of these signs that we see in the Gospel of Mark. You've heard that Jesus can heal the sick, that he has power over evil, that he has power over death. He, he's the one who can provide for our, our lack with very little He's the one who has control over nature, and he's the one who brings God's promised new creation. You've seen the signs. Do you believe? If you're not a, a Christian this morning, this passage confronts us with our unbelief. Who but God himself can heal the sick with just a word? Who but God alone can raise the dead? Who but God alone can speak and nature listens? But you see, Mark doesn't just stop there. The first half of his gospel is all focused on sign after sign after sign that Jesus is God. The second half of his gospel tells us what Jesus came to do. Why has Jesus, why has God come to earth? He has not come to conquer through the sword. He has come to conquer through the cross. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here, but it comes through the cross. God's chosen king, God himself, has come. And he's come to lay his life down for you in your place. Jesus himself says later in the Gospel of Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You have seen the signs. Do you believe this Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe 
Jesus has done everything that he says he will do, that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered death, that we might live with him. Beware of this hard heart like the Pharisees that says, hey, you know what, I'm doing quite well on my own, thank you very much. Beware of the the hard heart of Herod that says, why on earth would I ever possibly need someone to come and save me from my great life? You have seen the signs. Do you believe in the one who has come to save you from yourself? Of course, this message is is not just for those who do not believe in the gospel. It also confronts us who are close to Jesus, who are believers in Jesus, in the day-to-day unbelief that we experience. Unbelief starts small. It starts like a little bit of leaven, but if it's not addressed, it will soon devastate our entire souls. And just consider how dangerous this is for a place like us here at Crosswinds. If you've been with us uh, for a while, or even if it's your first time here, you've probably gathered how much we value God's Word, how much we, we love God's Word, how much we're committed to it, that we believe that God's Word has the power to transform hearts and lives. And, and if you look around, there's a lot of people here who know their Bibles really well. It's in that context, it can be so easy to be spiritually fake It can be so easy to deny that you have doubts or you have struggles or you have fears. We're a place that we can can gather together and and sing songs where we say God is sovereign, God is in charge of everything on Sundays, and yet we can be completely filled with anxiety and worry on Monday. We are a place where we can say that God is, there's nothing too powerful for God. When we join together in worship, we we confess that, and yet then we get to Monday and we doubt whether God really can do anything about our trials and our hardships and our suffering in the week. We boldly declare as we join together that God is faithful, but then we doubt whether he's actually with us when we struggle tomorrow. We can say together, his mercy is more, but then we wonder if there is indeed mercy for someone like me when I screw up on Thursday night. That is unbelief. That's the heart that Jesus is addressing here. It may start small, but it leads to this hard and callous heart. You have seen the signs. Do you believe? What would it look like for us to have this radical confidence in who God is and what God says? What would it look like for us to to actually have this belief of God influence every single day of our lives, that we would give no quarter to the leaven of unbelief in our lives? I think it would look a a little bit like an experience I had last night. I began this morning by saying um, it's been a a bit of a struggle this past week for me. Uh, It's one thing to say, hey, Jesus, I believe that you're bringing your new creation. And because of that, all all the hardship that I experience is light and momentary. Uh, But in the midst of not being able to do much this past week because of how much pain I was in, uh, that was really the the flame that tested whether my faith was genuine, whether I was actually going to practice what I preached. And, And last night, my son Silas, he's four, we were reading this book called The Storm That Stopped. And it's this children's book, and it's based off of Mark 4, 35 through 41, where Jesus speaks and he stops the storm with just his voice. 
And as I was reading this story to, to, to Silas, it was just uh, fascinating to see how engaged he was. Just like how, how on the edge of his seat he was as, as, he, as we read this story of, of what Jesus was about to do. And, and he was completely s- s- quiet. And if you've ever met Silas, you know that's a surprise. And he's on the edge of his seat. He's wondering what's going to happen next. And we get to the climax of the story where, where we know that Jesus is going to come to the rescue. And it doesn't say that Jesus grabs a bucket and starts bailing water out of the, the boat. It doesn't say that Jesus grabs an oar and he, and he rows back to shore. It just simply says Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And that book ends with the exact same question that Mark ends with in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. And it's this, if, if Jesus can do that, what does that say about who Jesus is? And Silas got it. He fell on his face, and I don't know if it was in worship or if he was just being silly. I think it was probably he was being silly. But he falls on his face, and he just starts shouting. He's amazing. He's powerful. He's amazing. He's so powerful. This four-year-old saw the sign, and at least in that moment, he believed. What about you? You have seen the signs. Do you believe? Let's pray. Jesus, I confess that oftentimes I struggle with unbelief. That I can say the right things And yet when I find myself in hardship or challenge or trial, that my impulse is to fall back on unbelief, to wonder where you are, to wonder why you don't care. God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to kill the unbelief in our hearts. to turn our hearts to you because we have seen the signs and that we wouldn't just stop with the signs, but we would truly grasp what they tell us about who you are. I'm reminded of the words of a father in Mark 9 when Jesus confronts him in his unbelief. And the man just says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And God, that is our prayer this morning. Lord, we believe. Help us in the midst of our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.